Welcome to 30 Brave Minutes, a podcast of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. In 30 Brave Minutes, we'll give you something interesting to think about. I'm Richard Gay, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, and with me are Drs. Ashley Allen and Dr. Joanna Percy. Joining us today is Dr. Laura Hakla from English Theater and World Languages. Our topic for today is 19th century children's literature in the South. Now get ready for 30 Brave Minutes. Dr. Hakala, tell us a bit about yourself and your interest in this topic. Sure. I grew up in the South. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and I was told all kinds of interesting things about being Southern, but I didn't really realize it was an identity until I was an adult looking back. And I just remember whenever I was going through a tough time or something difficult, my mom would always say to me, you descended from strong Southern woman, therefore you're a strong Southern woman. And that's just kind of like been this mantra that stayed with me, especially through graduate school and the trials of starting a career and everything. And so I went to college in in Jacksonville, Jacksonville University, and then throughout graduate school with my master's degree at Georgia Southern and my PhD at USM, um, Southern Mississippi. When it came time for me to kind of figure out what I wanted to study, I was always just kind of thinking about my childhood and these things I were told about being Southern. And sometimes that conflicted with a lot of what I was told in class. I was raised in a in a lot of ways, a very conservative family um, with some some very outdated ideas um, that I had to, to reckon with as I was becoming a scholar and, and getting exposed to new ideas, which is a process I think a lot of our students go through as well. So I wrote my master's thesis on To Kill a Mockingbird, and I, I really studied gender issues in that book. And then when I was in my PhD program at Southern Mississippi, I, I was kind of debating, do I want to continue that project for my dissertation or not? And then I ended up in um, this Civil War literature class. And it was honestly like, you know, I won't go into details, but it was like a really dark period in my life. I was like having a lot of problems. Um, a lot of mental health problems. And I was in this class. I knew I wanted to study children's literature, but we were all studying adult literature in the class. And so I was fortunate that at the school where I went to, uh, we have one of the best children's literature archives in the country, the DeGrom Children's Literature Collection. So I, I went there just out of curiosity. And I was like, I wonder if there's any children's books written during the Civil War. And I found one, this periodical called Burke's Weekly for Boys and Girls that had been published uh, in 1867, but still um, in denial that the Civil War was over <laughs> and kind of still kind of that South will rise again mindset and it was published in Georgia. And I mean, everything kind of went from there, all the pieces fell together. And, and I, I don't think it's a coincidence that during this really dark time for me grew this idea that really launched my dissertation and my career and my publications. So I often tell students that, that like, hey, you never know like what good things are going to come like during really dark periods. I wanted to just ask what's one of the most surprising things that you've seen um, or come across about Southern girlhood? There's a couple things. One was that, especially looking at older texts at 19th century children's books, a lot of the Southern girls are allowed to be tomboys and they're allowed to kind of cross these gender lines and these gender barriers in ways that maybe stories about girls in other regions are seen, it's seen as more, they're criticized more for doing it. Whereas in the South, I think just by nature of the landscape and, and 
I just, I think honestly, because of the heat, like, especially in the time for air conditioning, you couldn't be inside. You just had to be outside. I mean, there's these, all these examples in these books of girls climbing trees and playing on vines and going fishing and doing things that like in a classic book, like little women, they're not doing, or even when they do do it, like there's that famous scene, in the little women where Joe, um, goes ice skating with Lori like it turns really dangerous and her sister almost dies and it's seen as this like oh you're acting like a boy you shouldn't do that but in these southern books the girls are allowed to do that and so that was surprising to me because it also correlated with the way I was raised like I was raised like oh it doesn't matter you know if you're a girly girl or not like you're outside doing things you're climbing trees you're fishing you're hunting you're doing all of this I'm curious if there's something distinctly American as opposed to British in some of these characters. When we look at 19th century children's literature, especially girls, there's a lot of scholars who've studied how there's more tomboys in American children's literature. So I think that feature of the Southern books from that time period, and even into the 20th century with characters like Scout Finch and To Kill a Mockingbird. And a lot of scholars have looked at it as like this American sense of like independence and, and kind of this frontier impulse to kind of break some of those those gender barriers um, and be transgressive and so in a lot of ways it is yes American but I do think with some of these works that I've studied and I've looked at certainly the racial complexities and how kind of gender and race are intertwined uh, in a way that I think is distinctly southern especially in the 19th century books um, and even into the 20th century as well. Well, I was just wondering, I mean, there's definitely this, obviously, I'm from the South too, you know, and just this perspective that the South is less cultured, do you know what I mean? And are of a, a lower status or class. And so I wonder if that plays into this perception that women could go out and do these tomboyish things because they weren't held to like more of these like class or culture standards that's something my students bring up a lot when I teach this because I think they've experienced that stereotype of like I'm southern so I I sound less educated less intelligent I mean I, I know like I for instance when I was in college I act actively worked to lose some of my southern pronunciations of words because I was so tired of people making fun of me over it and that interestingly I mean I'm thinking through in my head I I don't see that as much come up in a lot of the, the 19th century books about white characters, but I do think the Southern children's books about black characters, that comes up much more. I'd like to read an excerpt from the book Floyd's Flowers, which was a conduct manual published in 1905, specifically for black children. And it's groundbreaking because it was one of the first, if not the first, children's book to represent Southern Black children as middle class. It was written by an African-American minister and educator named Silas Floyd, and the whole book really subverts a lot of the Jim Crow era prejudice from that time. And we read it recently in uh, my Southern Children's Literature class, and the students really thought that this book uh, was Southern because of the prominence of Christianity in it. 
So this excerpt comes from a short story in the book called Mary and Her Dolls, and it resists the racist stereotypes of the time period because it portrays a black girl um, not like the stereotypes of the time, which were very animalistic, but this black girl is very intelligent and she has complex thoughts and emotions and desires, and so she's much more uh, realistic. And here is this excerpt where a young girl, Mary, is talking to her father, the Reverend Dr. Smithson. Mary, said Dr. Smithson, looking thoughtfully at his little daughter, I have a little girl in my Sunday school class who hasn't a single doll. I thought you might like to give her one of yours. You could spare one, couldn't you? Oh, Papa, I couldn't. Not a one, exclaimed Mary. Not one? When this poor little girl hasn't any? Oh, Papa, I love my dolls so. How can I give them away? You'd have four left. Wouldn't that be enough? Mary thought a long while before speaking. She looked distressed. Papa, she said at last, Mrs. Grant was over here the other day, and she said that she wished you and Mama would give me to her because she didn't have any little girl of her own. You've got five children yourself, Papa, but would you give any of them away just because you would have four left? Dr. Smithson took his little daughter in his arms and kissed her. No, dear, he said. Papa wouldn't give any one of his children away. You may keep all of your dollies and we'll think of some other way to help poor little Hattie. The next morning, Mary said, Papa, I have thought it all out for Hattie. You know I have been saving up a little money to buy me a little iron bank, but I can wait for that. I have saved up 50 cents. Don't you think that will be enough to buy a nice little dolly for Hattie and let me keep my babies? Dr. Smithson knew that Mary had long been planning for the bank, so he asked, Are you quite sure that you want to spend your money in this way? Yes, Papa, I'm very sure, said Mary with a smile, though there was a hint of sadness in her eyes. Dr. Smithson and Mary bought Hattie a pretty doll. Hattie was overjoyed when she saw it. Mary went back home, glad that her papa had understood how she loved her dolls, and glad to find that not one of her beloved children was missing. I love, I can see why your students love that. It's so interesting. I was just going to ask uh, Dr. Hackley if she could talk to us a bit about how she engages her students in her in her work because uh, she made reference to them earlier and I was curious how the student how she interacts with her students and this very interesting topic. This semester I'm teaching a class on Southern children's literature that's really developed from my research and it's the senior seminar class so it's the class that English majors have to take to do and learn advanced research skills for humanities-based research and the kind of the end goal is they all produce this project of, of literature analysis and so we We've spent really like the first two thirds of the class reading um, a lot of the books that I've published on and, and researched and studying them and reading scholarship about them. And a lot of them, I think even they thought just the topic of Southern children's literature, they thought it would just be, you know, plantations and kind of the moonlight magnolias myth. And, and they saw that, no, it's really way more complex than that, just like the South is more complex than that. Um, so that's been the primary way I've engaged students in the past. And then the, this semester, I'm also mentoring a student in the REACH program, 
we together are going to look at this series of textbooks that were published for formerly enslaved children and they were used in freedmen's schools in the south right after the civil war and these textbooks were published in the late 1860s and so i thought this would be a good project to kind of blend history and, and literature and and we're hoping to produce a website where we can have what's in the textbooks who was using them you know have it on a website so we can share it with others can you tell us a bit about how you access the, the literature, uh, the children's literature of the periods? Because I'm just thinking I'd love to, to read some of them myself. And are, are they have they been digitized? Are they available for public consumption that way? Or do you have to travel to archives to view these? Yeah, now you can access them digitally. When I was uh, working on my dissertation back in 2013 and 2014, a lot of them had not been digitized. And honestly, like, I just, I'm amazed at what has been digitized. I mean, I got things wrong because now there's so much more digitized and we can access more. Um, but at the time, when I first started doing this research, I worked a lot in the archive at Southern Mississippi, the DeGroman Archive. I wrote an article on an anti-slavery book um, that was published in 1862 called Step-by-Step, Step, Tidy's Way to Freedom. And that's been digitized on Project Gutenberg. And it's just amazing how how things change the more the more that becomes digitized. That's affecting lots of different fields as well. I study uh, manuscripts, handwritten books, and so many of them now have been digitized. It's really opening up the field to lots of interesting scholarship. And I love the way it breaks down uh, barriers in terms of who has access to this material. It's great that more and more people can actually look at them and see themselves in them, as you've been describing, but also have the opportunity to uh, investigate them intellectually and to think about them in really engaging ways. So yay, digitization and digital humanities. And I agree. I think it's it makes it a lot easier to teach these primary sources, um, these historical sources, because they're for free online. I mean, I, I in this Southern Children's Literature class, like our first couple of weeks is just all online information. Really helpful. It's a game changer. Now, I have to ask, would you be reading any of these uh, 19th century children's books to your new infant? Oh, good question. Yes and no. So some of them I would not recommend contemporary children read today without a whole bunch of context. I mean, I think a lot of them are really kind of just now more suited for scholars. But I think there are some that I would. And some of the picture books I teach, I've already read to her. We can link to some of your favorite recommendations too in the show notes if you have a sense of, of things that the listeners would like. I think that this conversation is interesting too because you mentioned before this sense that, okay, we can be tomboys and we can climb trees and we can do all that. And then it comes to a halt when we have to become marriageable. And the, the sort of, sometimes we don't think of these books where the girls have to do that as being very feminist, but also we're recording this in the summer of the Barbie movie, which is another thing that sometimes doesn't feel very feminist. But many of us that grew up with these kinds of things in our childhood felt them as empowering. And that's been wonderful with the discourse about the Barbie movie too, is that, you know, some of us feel like they were ways to act out possible future agendas. And even though it's not Southern, it's reminding me of things like Anne of Green Gables, where we have lots of tomboy aspects. This is set in Canada, 
but that she becomes a feminist character going out and getting an education and she does get married to the end spoiler alert <laughs> but it it's still a very independent strong young woman and young adult and are there other examples in the literature that you can point to where we do see maybe mixed sort of oddly together with the must get married narrative where you see the strength of the women coming through as they go into puberty and into adulthood? Yeah, well, I mean, this is not a Southern example, but I think the the best example is Little Women, which also Greta Gerwig, who did the Barbie movie, did the movie version of Little Women. We see, I mean, I think that's one of the main ones. And I, I teach that book all the time in my women's literature classes and students, they love it. Because um, I think they love the rebellious spirit of Joe and how she rejects her first uh, marriage offer of Lori and, and then waits to choose uh, Professor Bear, who she actually loves. And so I think, in, especially in the 19th century, we even though girls were expected to grow up, get married, we see them trying to delay it as much as possible to, as, as an act of resistance. So like you mentioned, Anna Green Gables, she does get married, but it's like several books into the series so like it's not like she turns 18 and gets married immediately she becomes a teacher and and becomes a writer and kind of does these other things um and I'm thinking in a lot of the southern books that I look at especially the 19th century ones we don't see the girls grow up as much so that's kind of this kind of strange feature of the southern books the adult southern woman is kind of vague and mysterious like even the mothers aren't really there so much more complicated in the South. This is Chancellor Rodney Cummings, and I want to thank you for listening to 30 Brave Minutes. Our faculty and students provide expertise, energy, and passion driving our region forward. Our commitment to Southeast North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at uncc.edu slash Thanks again for listening. Now back to me. Laura, share with us the second reading that you've brought for us today. I'd like to read from Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry by Mildred Taylor. This is a book I chose partly in honor of Banned Books Week, which was the first week of October. And since it's been so recent, um, I wanted to honor a book that has been banned and has been censored. And, and this particular one has had several instances of being challenged in the past. Um, but it's very well regarded. It's one of my favorite books. And it won the Newbery Award in 1976, which was the highest honor Um for a children's book to receive. And it was only the second African-American author to win that award. And it's a story about a family in Mississippi in the 1930s named the Logans, and they draw strength from each other and from their farm in the face of racial prejudice and oppression. Um, and I chose a particular quote because it particularly demonstrates this deep connection between Southern children and the outdoors and the land they live on, which is a thread I see in many Southern works of children's literature. So in this particular passage, uh, the protagonist, a young girl named Cassie, is talking to her father about their farm. I asked him once why he had to go away, why the land was so important. 
He took my hand and said in his quiet way, Look out there, Cassie girl, all that belongs to you. You ain't never had to live on nobody's place but your own. And long as I live and the family survives, you'll never have to. That's important. You may not understand that now, but one day you will. Then you'll see. That's wonderful. Thank you. It brought up another question for me as I was listening to, uh, like, how do we even define children's literature as we uh, approach the topic? And is it then, could you address that a little bit for us, please? Absolutely. And that is something that scholars have debated uh, because it is kind of a fluid term. And most children's literature scholars, we, we use children's literature to refer to books that were marketed specifically to children. Um, so a lot, a lot of it comes down to marketing categories. And even now we have young adult literature, which has only really been a marketing category since the 1960s. So The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton is often considered like the first young adult book because it was really marketed towards them. Now, prior to that, certainly people who are teenagers were reading books absolutely it just didn't always have the same label and same thing with little women like okay nowadays older kids are probably reading it if they're even reading it at all even though we refer to it as a children's book even if you know like an eight-year-old is probably not going to pick up little women and read it unless they were weird like me (laughs) because I did that but in the 19th century there was this huge outgrowth of books that were being marketed two kids and, and little women was one of them how are the books are they are their authors knowingly writing them for kids are they being marketed to kids and then sometimes okay does that mean adults also read them yeah sure like for instance i think i love like twilight marketed as a young adult book tons of adults read it and enjoyed it so i think there's there's books that can cross over in terms of readers as well, even if they were like originally marketed in a certain way. I'm really curious about the availability of these books in the periods when they were published. Do we know what the print runs are on these? And that is something, it's hard to get the information. I would love to know that. I mean, that might be something I would have to travel to the archives of the publishing company and kind of dig through that. I do know, I mentioned the conduct manual, Boyd's Flowers, that was written for Black kids. I do know that 10,000 copies of that was sold in the first five weeks, which I mean, for 1905, I think that's huge. I think, I mean, that was a huge number. So I think it's interesting that not only were the the dominant cultural narratives of Jim Crow views and white supremacy, like that selling, but also Floyd's Flowers, which is challenging that narrative, is also selling in 1905 at the height of the Jim Crow era. And are there, I think we're talking about books for the most part, are there also magazines? I know magazines become a bigger thing in the 19th century. Yeah, periodicals, that was, there were tons of them. Um, And that I mentioned when I was in that Civil War literature class, and I I found this periodical, this magazine that was published in 1867, Burke's Weekly for Boys and Girls. And so there's, there were lots of short stories in these magazines. I know, for instance, that Burke's Weekly narrative printed like casualty reports from civil war battles so so there's also like a lot of nonfiction elements and 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 very kind of open and honest about things that are happening in 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 society like with the civil war for instance laura i know that a lot of your work is on children's literature that 
that you argue has a central central role in defining Southern identities. Can you just sort of give us a, a, a sort of a brief synopsis of a, of a, a Southern identity? Yeah. One of the things I think is hard when we're talking about um, Southern identity, childhood identities, there there isn't just one. There's so many. Um, and that that's one thing I, I try to emphasize in my class that being Southern and being a Southern child means so many different things. Certainly Christianity is a large part of that identity type, spending out time outdoors in nature. I think if you were to look at, say, the enslaved girl on the plantation, her identity, I think it would be very different um, because she, you know, certainly doesn't have as much access to education as the white girl. But I think we see examples in the literature of trying to gain access to education. And, 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 and I think like the book Step by Step, um, she gets access, she, she steals this spelling book that her um, the enslaver had discarded and she studies it and learns how to read. And so we see this, this persistence shine through. There's a lot of strength in that, right? This this desire for education and overcoming uh, adversity. Yeah, education as as a way towards social progress, which I think is something that I mean, it kind of reminds me of Ashley's question from earlier about the Southern stereotype as being uneducated and and uncultured. Um, and I think they're even in the South today. I mean, I think a lot of our students would even say like, "Hey, they're at UNCP to get a college degree." because that's how they progress in society. Have you done any research with like Native American children's literature or anything like that? There's a lot. There's a scholar named Debbie Reese who has a website called, I believe it's American Indians and Children's Literature. And I mean, it has fantastic resources. Two, there's two Lumbee children's books um, that have been self-published. Dr. Jane Halliday just recently um, published an article on those. But one is, it's Lumbee Homecoming, y'all. And the other one is Who's You People? And both, I think, were, were self-published because the writers did not see Lumbee people in children's literature and they wanted to write these books so Lumbee kids could see themselves. And you've brought one more reading, I think, for listeners today. Tell us about that one. This excerpt comes from a picture book named Crossing Bogue Chitto. It was published in 2006 by Choctaw writer Tim Tingle, and it was illustrated by Jeannie Rorix Bridges, who is Cherokee. This story tells of a Choctaw girl named Martha Tom who lives in Mississippi across the river from a plantation. And she helps an enslaved boy named Little Mo and his family escape from the plantation using this secret path through the river. And, and this river really demonstrates the prominence of nature and outdoor settings for Southern children. It demonstrates the importance of interracial friendship. And it also demonstrates that Southern childhood is not just black or white, but full of many racial backgrounds. So here's an excerpt where Martha Tom is leading Little Mo across the river on the secret path. They soon arrived at the river, and it was Martha Tom's turn to lead. She took Little Mo to the path, but he couldn't see the stones beneath the muddy water. This will be a fun game to play, she thought. She walked five paces back to get a good running start, then leapt to the river. Little Mo reached out to grab her dress as she flew by to keep her from drowning. 
When Martha Tom landed in the river, she stood up. Little girl, what kind of witch are you? Little Mo cried. Martha Tom laughed. I'm not any kind of witch. You can do it too. Come on. She took Little Mo by the hand and together the two of them went crossing Bogchito to the Choctaw side. That is so wonderful. Thank you so much for bringing those. Awesome. Thank you. Well, this is such a rich topic. Thank you so much for joining us today for 30 Brave Minutes. I feel like I've learned a lot. I uh, want to spend some time looking at and reading some children's books from the 19th century. I think there's something for all of us to learn from those, perhaps identify with. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. This podcast was edited and transcribed by Joanna Hersey, and our theme music was composed by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only, and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of GNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves!